Why don't I start? Huh? The simplest way to put it? I have problems. Welcome to episode 15 of I Think I Like This Movie, America's Least Necessary Film Criticism Podcast. This week, writer of the Action Cookbook newsletter and other internet musings, Scott Hines, brings us the 1991 comedy What About Bob, featuring Bill Murray, Richard Dreyfus, Julie Haggerty, and Catherine Irby. So let's pack our bags from New Hampshire and make sure not to let the little things ruin our vacation. Scott, you brought us this movie, so let me ask you, what is this? Isolation therapy? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> what 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 prompted you? I and I know because I, I know you'd written about it in the newsletter that you had uh, recently rewatched another movie which uh, has an interesting connection to this movie, which we'll get into. But um, what what made you choose? What about Bob? What was your experience with What about Bob? Why did you think that you liked this movie? Well, so given the the uh, the whole approach you're taking here, I want I really wanted to answer the the question of I think I like this movie and. I genuinely had not seen it in it in about, I mean, it came out 30 years ago. So I'm going to say about 27 years, maybe. And I think I liked it. You know, it's a, it's a Bill Murray comedy. I, I recall enjoying it, but I was genuinely curious how it would hold up. Well, what was your first experience? I mean, do you remember watching it? You said it maybe a few years after it came out, was that on TV with your family? Like, like what was, what was that experience? It was almost certainly like a, a rental a few years after it came out. I mean, it was soon, soon thereafter. It was when it was still a contemporary movie. And I recall enjoying it. I, you know, think it was a funny movie. I know, and we can we can get into this, but I think the the question that lingered for me is, boy, how how is some of this going to age as it relates to you know psychology, psychiatry, treatment of mental health as a you know as a subject of humor you know attitudes have certainly shifted on that since 1991 so i was really curious how this movie was going to age there's a reason that we do a lot of comedies uh yeah (laughs) comedy comedy and science fiction are sort of the two things that i think bucket wise uh, have a tendency to either age actually pretty well or really, really not well, uh, depending <laughs> on how they've been handled. Um, Will, what, did, what was your experience? And do you, do you, had you seen this movie? And do you remember what your what your watch was? I saw it in theaters uh, with my folks, so I would have been seven, eight years old, I guess, when this came out. Because this, this is ninety one, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'd have been seven, eight years old, and I remember being very excited to go see uh, Peter Venkman. Because that was my only connection in terms of like the Bill Murray stuff. I only knew him as, as Peter Bankman from Ghostbusters. And I remembered laughing a lot as a little kid, but being very disappointed that there was no Ghostbusting. I, I think this was actually my first Bill Murray exposure. Like like when when it got brought up as, as the movie to do, I, I had not thought about this movie in a long time. But it, it occurred to me, I definitely saw it at my dad's house um in like a summer in pennsylvania when i was like visiting him and like which means it was like on cable or what it had been it had made it to tv like i don't think we would have rented it um and and i definitely saw it before i saw ghostbusters just like whatever i I didn't see ghostbusters until later in my adolescence i think um but yeah like i i really i really think this was my first bill murray experience which is 
I don't know. It's a it's a pretty hard entry in, into into the Bill Murray universe. Like, like he is he's full Bill Murray here, right? We've talked about like the Keanu Reeves universe, or not Keanu Reeves, the uh, the Nicolas Cage universe in, in, in the various Nick Cage movies and stuff, and how there's like levels of Nick Cage that that build as, as it goes. And like this is this is mid Murray. This isn't like early Murray. Uh, I I I don't I didn't remember him being quite as like kind of aggressive as i guess the character is um i i, I don't know so you had him you had ghostbusters background will scott did you where, where did this fall into your bill murray experience i almost certainly had seen ghostbusters before this but i don't think i came in with the association that will did of like oh it's the guy from ghostbusters so much is just like the early 90s i think were a really uh prolific time for that sort of mid-range comedy that you know, I don't feel, feel like we see a lot of those now. I was just like, yeah, here's a funny premise, here's a funny actor, and go. Yeah, it's it. It certainly. I mean, you know, the Jim Carrey era and Adam Sandler era, and it, right, like there, there were there were enough people who had enough like comedy cachet to, to just be like, yeah, write a really thin <laughs> plot around this and just like let Chris Farley be Chris Farley, you know, like there's, that was, that was definitely like a genre of movie. All right. So for people who don't know what we're talking about, who don't really know this movie, uh, Scott, as the guest, we will ask you to give us a quick plot summary, which actually I think in this one is fairly easy to do. Uh, there's not too much, uh, crazy deviation from a very central plot line in anywhere from log line to paragraph form. Can you tell us what happened in what about Bob? Yeah, and I think you're right. This is not exactly Tenet. It's a it's a straightforward plot. Uh, Bill Murray plays a, I would say, deeply deeply troubled man. He's got a lot of neuroses, which part of the the datedness of the premise is it it's unclear to me on rewatch how how much it is being played for laughs. I think it is being played for laughs, but how extreme it is. So he's you know, I would say obsessive compulsive, very fearful of death, has trouble getting through his day and a very obsessive relationship with his psychiatrists. At the same time, we're introduced to uh, Richard Dreyfus as Dr. Leo Marvin, a celebrity psychiatrist who's just written a best-selling book and is going to be interviewed on Good Morning America, uh, who is uh the other part that was really unclear to me, and we can get into this deeper, is how much Richard Dreyfus was to be taken as a as a hack. Because I think I think in present viewing, he's very obviously a hack. But in 1991, for as much as I recall of 1991 being nine years old at the time, I kind of think this was that was normal that he was. <laughs> You're like, oh, this would be a respected figure in in the field. We just expect but, them uh, to be schmucks, I guess, during that time period. Yeah. And uh, so the there's a, a brief scene where a previous a colleague of Dr. Marvin's is hurriedly leaving town after closing his practice and passes off this client that he thinks will be uh, a great client for, for Dr. Marvin. It turns out to be the very troubled uh, Bill Murray character, uh, Bob Wiley. Uh they have one session that on actual screen time lasts about five minutes uh, where he introduced Dr. Marvin introduces uh, Bob Wiley to his, 
baby steps method for curing his problems and then informs him that he's leaving on vacation for a month to go with his family. He doesn't say where he's going, but he's going to Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. And Bob is forlorn because he's going to be going a month without psychiatric care and tracks Dr. Marvin all the way to his vacation home, befriends his family, gloms into his life, and eventually drives him crazy. I don't know if we get into spoilers here if we tell the whole plot. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, we, we, we can't. That, I mean, that, that covers it, I think. Yeah. But, but we, we, we certainly do, this is a, a spoiler-heavy uh, podcast. The idea is hopefully you have already watched this movie and you are taking place, you know, taking part in this sort of post-conversation that, that we're taking part in. Um, yeah, right, he, he, I mean, and and that that kind of is there's more detail there, but like he drives him crazy. That's kind of the end. Like there's there is more stuff happens, you know, in, in terms of of actual plot. But I, I wanted to go back to to the point that you made, or, or actually, well, any other any other key points that that you wanted to fill in, uh, just in terms of plot. I, I just think it's funny that the log line for this would literally be, "Patient drives therapist crazy." I mean, I think that that, that has saw... to have been the pitch. I think I saw when I watched this on on Amazon, uh, which is a, you can you can rent this uh, on Amazon. There's a couple of services that, that stream it, but yeah, there. The, I think that's literally what it was. It was something about you know, uh, a psychiatrist patient slowly drives him crazy or, or whatever. And then my right. sister. <clears throat> yeah, oh, I, right. I I'm looking up. I looked at the movie poster right now, and it's Bob's a special kind of friend, the kind that drives you crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you you kind of mentioned you you touched on on uh, in the time and kind of how psychiatrists were were viewed broadly and like and the field of psychiatry like there's certainly that's a bunch of of this sort of stuff that places this in in this era so I I think we could just jump right into sort of what what uh, what else about this movie and, and we can get deeper in, into like I definitely think that like his neuroses were sort of played for laughs at times I don't know that they were like entirely but like certainly the elevator scene is like one of the like funnier scenes, arguably I mean, like finally baby steps into the elevator. And then as soon as the doors close, they do this shot of like the lobby area around the elevator. You just hear him scream, you know, in the background, baby step onto the elevator, baby steps into the elevator. I'm in the elevator. And like, it's genuinely funny, but it's also like, Right, we're like laughing at this man's, you know, uh, uh, inability to sort of function in public. One of the things that I appreciated, I guess, in our our current pandemic world was the use of tissues. Like that's played for laughs in the movie, but that makes total sense to me these days. Yeah, that was that was definitely a thing that I laughed at in 1991, and I've just recently started touching doorknobs in my office again. I mean, yeah. I just saw 12 months of opening with my wrist or my, you know, my elbow. <laughs> Like and Bob had the work from home thing locked down in 1991. He, he had his whole punch in clock set up and his computer. He he never left the house to work. He had it all figured out. Like he's Bob was was pandemic ready. Like very clearly. Um, yeah, but but right. Like I mean, to your point, there was some stuff that I think was supposed to build sympathy for the character to make you kind of you know feel bad for him. And and then there were you know if this is a comedy, they kind of the Hollywood script must make you laugh every 90 seconds or else it's not a comedy anymore. Uh, so there was stuff that was sort of thrown in there, but um, what, what else about this movie really, really pegged it to being like very much having been made in 1991. I mean, definitely the, 
I feel like everyone had a level of trust that they should not have had. You know, Bob tracks his doctor to to his vacation home. And I, I guess one fundamental, you're talking about building sympathy. The, the part I was really unclear on is, did the filmmakers intend for us to take anyone's side here? Are we supposed to be on Bob's side? Are we supposed to be on Dr. Marvin's side? And given 30 years of distance and context, I'm not sure I can tell. I mean, Dreyfus but, plays it like a villain. Yeah, Dreyfus, you know, he's supposed to be kind of a pompous jerk. But at the same time, he's right. <laughs> you know, there's a point where he says to um, to his wife, you know, he could be a serial killer for all we know. And yeah. she acts like it's a ridiculous statement. She's like, no, let's let's let him sleep in our son's bedroom. Oh, my God. That part. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> But, but, but right. So I, there's something we, we've talked about this in a number of episodes. I, we're going to have to think of a term for this. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can put our heads together and think of a term for this, but I, we, I've talked repeatedly and we, we've talked in, in, in all sorts of different movies about the character who is right, who everyone thinks is crazy. It's not like a Cassandra exactly, but it's like, cause sometimes it's, it's Dr. Marvin. Like Dr. Marvin is correct that like this man is like manipulating his way into his family's life. He's right. Like, and he's an asshole, but he's also right. <laughs> like that, that, like he's ruining everything kind of intentionally and like manipulating all this. Um, yeah. Right. But they, they really don't, they, they make Bob somewhat sympathetic, but then the stuff like him pretending to be a police officer and like that, really really you know really manipulative behavior even before we get to the stuff with like the family just like with with other people with strangers makes it very hard to sort of side with him and then like right obviously richard dreyfus very much plays it as like this kind of neurotic bad person who's just driven insane by him um i by about 45 minutes into the movie somebody should have called the police and the police should have listened that right you know, this this man is stalking me. But the girl's like, no, bring him over to dinner. As you said, let him sleep in our 12-year-old son's room, which was deeply troubling enough for me to put in my notes for this. Yeah, I mean, like, like it's there are definitely things that don't make sense. Let's we we will get into all of the plot, the plot holes. I I want to reel back to 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 just like to 91 though and and i mean we and we could talk about about the view of psychiatry we could there's there's a lot here in terms of of sort of what what puts it in in, in this era well were there things that really stood out to you that that pegged this as as being very much a movie of this era um the use of pay phones everyone's on the phone pretty much all the time in this it's it's throughout the entire film but specifically the um secretarial service Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the whole the whole, that whole phone setup of him having to like try to get through a, an intermediary and then physically showing up there and the whole thing. Yeah, I mean that just would not happen these days, right? Uh, to the technology end, to um, Doctor Marvin has a clapper in his bedroom. Yep, <laughs> I I, I la- That's one of the few times that I laughed out loud was him clapping the lights off. Yeah, like that's uh, that's still just funny now. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I I think that it was meant. It's funny to think about what what did a filmmaker mean for him to have that. And I think that that's meant to make him look like more of a dick. Like I like I I don't think that that's just like oh right everyone has the clapper. It's like no, he's one of those people who would have had the clapper. You know what I mean? Like it felt like like a like an, an intentional sort of character flaw uh, like that they put in there, um, especially because it comes on the heels of him being like 
oh, this guy killed himself. He, he finally hears the story that Bob had killed himself that he didn't actually. But he goes, well, let's not let that ruin our vacation. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but right. Yeah. So he read the whole all the phone stuff. The bus was very aged. It had the wooden paneling on the backs of the seats. Um, just like the clothes and like as as Bob steps out. I, there's so many movies that we do where like the, the depiction of New York City is this just like like overbearing, uh, you know, borderline out of control. Like he steps out in, into there's like the guy walks by with a boom box and the trash truck or something comes by. It, it just thought that like there's one shot that's supposed to be New York and, and it's already like very much. Oh, this is, this is dangerous. New York city. I'd love to know what that block looks like today. I'd love to know what neighborhood that was set. Yeah. Well, it yeah, looks like right. it's, it looks like it's the lower East side, which okay. would, yeah. for the nineties, it makes sense for that to be like a creepy, super dangerous place. It's, it's no longer like that though. Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we we've all been to New York in the last five years. It's uh, right. It's not not the same thing anymore. Um, but yeah, it's I, I one thing that just stuck out to me, sort of as like a filmmaking thing, was I think there's one non-white character, which is which is the phone operator. Uh, like like everyone is white and like rich. Even Bob is like rich. Bob has money to like spend. He's not like super rich, but he's like. Oh right, I have. I'm comfortable. I'm. I can spend all this money on like therapy and not blink. I can. I can buy bus tickets and just like disappear off to wherever and not blink about. Like he doesn't live in like a palatial place in New York, but like money is not like an issue for him. Like clearly, is, he, is it ever established what his job is? By the way, no, okay. I don't think so. We see him literally punch like punch in the clock and that. But like I, he like clearly is fine and like self-sustaining and everyone seems to be sort of fine it's like not you know in the way that like maybe texts of today deal with that stuff more and like get into it and like the friends era of, of television and movies like ever just the money like it didn't matter you know Listen, the filmmakers had exactly 12 seconds to establish he's got a job but we're not going to get into it right just <laughs> Like they could have, it would have been interesting to sort of know, like, how does he function and survive and have a job in that era? Like now you could understand how he could get away with being like a total recluse, but like, yeah, it's, it's a different, it's a different thing then. Um, Filmmaking oddity, actually, we're talking about just the, the way they shot it. One thing that stood out in watching it last night was there are like three different scenes where somebody's brushing their teeth in a conversation and I don't know. I just feel like, and I don't know if that specifically represents anything so much as the way conversational scenes were done at the time, instead of focusing on the characters like, well, they're brushing their teeth, they're talking. And uh, my wife and I were watching this and speculating like, well, if this movie had been made 10 years earlier, it would have been casual nudity instead. <laughs> because right, yeah. the, the same Bill Murray and I recently watched uh, Stripes within the last year and I had not seen that in years. Love that one. And it very much does the 80s thing of like these characters are having a conversation but the female character is changing right. for completely no plot reason. Yeah. Like right. in the 80s you did that in the 90s you just had them doing weird stuff around the house like brushing their teeth on camera for no reason. <laughs> Yeah, there were, and there were some missed opportunities there. Um, 
we can get it, we can get into the characters. Uh, this was sort of a, a thing for me was, um, you know, his his wife, the the doctor's wife, is I I feel like it kind of played as as just sort of an idiot and like a not very well developed character. Like you you understand the complex relationships to the degree that you would do in a comedy with both his son and his daughter. You see him interact and how he's failed as a parent with both of them um, and their neuroses as a result of both sort of who he is professionally and who he fails to be personally, even though who he's supposed to be professionally with them. Um, not to mention the fact that they are named Sigmund and Anna, which is a whole other level of stuff. But, but, but in terms of, of like his wife is such a thinly drawn character and doesn't, you don't, you don't understand. There's no, there's none of that same like tension there of like, well, is there a reason they don't get along? Is there a reason why she's keep siding with Bob? Like this like total stranger. Well, it's, it's like she's playing her character from airplane, but unironically. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. She's she's just playing this sort of bizarre, very, very thin character. And and Scott, to your point about like them brushing their teeth, there's this weird scene where he like comes home and she's just like reading a book like in like their bed. She's just like reading a like it's it's it seems like these like wasted opportunities to like, well, let's learn more about like why it is that all this is happening and like fill fill out her character. So like in terms of 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 characters, she felt really kind of underdeveloped to me in a mm-hmm. way that could have could have made you side more clearly with Bob. Like if, if you could understand like the same way that you understand that, that Dr. Marvin's kind of a dick to his kids. Like, Oh, if you understood that they had also similar issues, you know, in terms of, of the marriage, like I don't know if something got cut or if it just, they just never bothered with it. But, um, but, and as creepy as and weird as the, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and throw Bob in, in our 12 year old son's room for, for the night scene like the setup was i actually thought that the scene was really was really sort of charming and and that his character like that like i think the son was really good like he was he was funny and like in a way that in i guess like authentic in a way that uh adolescents are often inauthentically portrayed in in movies like like they either are too like horny already and they're like teenagers or they're just like treated as like, like little children like that like that sort of like i'm starting to figure out the world and i don't know what to do with it age is is, is often like like not that well portrayed and this is fascinating to me i'll stop talking after this but <laughs> charlie corsmo who is the actor who played that as a child actor uh i looked at his biography <laughs> i fell down the same hole but go ahead <laughs> charles r corsmo is an assistant professor of law and the u.s director of the canada u.s law institute at the case western reserve university school of law where he teaches courses in corporate law corporate finance and torts corsmo's articles have recently appeared in the william and mary law review and brooklyn law review among others and it goes from there but like it's crazy that like this child actor ended up being you know that <laughs> we see what what happens to most child actors but between what about bob and there he was also the he was in hook angry nerd in can't hardly wait which i i love can't hardly wait it's a character flaw of my own yeah well he was also in hook to, uh, to your point will like oh yeah and, and and that was a weird thing was that robin williams was considered originally for the bill murray role mm-hmm. uh in the in what about bob and Patrick Stewart was considered for for Leo Marvin, which imagine just like imagine that duo and then how much different that movie is than than the one that, that got made. Um, well, you know, and I, I didn't know this, but I I have something in my notes that 
maybe we, we say for a little later of like an ultimate conclusion I came to of who I would rather see in this role than Bill Murray. But uh, to the to the child actor thing, the Charlie Corsmo thing, I was looking up all of the the actors. I, I have a terrible habit of doing this when watching a movie. And I'm like, oh, it's the, it's the guy from this. It's you know, like, shut up, shut up. I mean, IMDb exists for that. Yeah, that's why that's why it's there. You know. Well, one thing that was very funny to I me, mean, Charlie Corsmo was playing a 12 year old, and I think actually was around 12. The uh, sister Anna. Right. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. How old she was supposed to be, but I think you know maybe 16, 17. She was 25 years old, and Julie Haggerty, playing her mother, was 35. Yep. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Which is, like, classic Hollywood. Like, like oh, right, you're, you're, you're literally, like, like, a teenager until you're an old woman. Like, that's, like, how they treat so many, so many female actors. Actresses just, like, like oh, right, you, you, you exist in these little spaces and, like, nothing else. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, open-endedness like there is for, for male roles when i was end up looking their looking up their ages because you may have seen recently have people post a picture from cheers and and point out that like oh when cheers premiered george went was 33 years old which is right. shocking <laughs> yeah so like i like to see like okay well it's 1991 how old are these people actually am i older than them and you know but the, the ten-year age difference between mother and daughter was surprising to me. We we talked about this in uh, episode three. Uh, we did did big uh, Hanks for a good time. Uh, it, we specifically were talking about the, the female lead in in that one, who I, I was talking about how then this is 1988, this is 1991. We're in that same sort of era. How every woman in the and it was also New York City. They sort of the dresses the same. The the the, the clothing is the same. Every woman just like looks thirty seven for some reason. Like they like it's hard to describe like what that means, but they just that's just the way that they they are presented on screen. And she was like twenty seven in that movie, and it just you're like, wait, was she supposed to be twenty? I don't know. Like it doesn't seem like they were showing her as being twenty seven, but like it's it's very hard to know because of yeah, you're either you're either like way. a teenager or you're middle aged, and that's it. Yeah, basically. The, right. the nineties fashion did not help. You know, yeah. I, I, and the hair. You watch Seinfeld and people like Julia Louis Dreyfus has aged wonderfully, and she has. But at the same time, the way she looked on Seinfeld was not doing anyone any favors. Every yeah. everyone back then looked much older than they were. Right. Well, uh, we've run into that uh, with Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei is yeah. like in, in the exact same thing. Where like Marissa Tomei in like my cousin Vinny, and then we we did in episode ten uh, in the bedroom. Uh, Consider the lobster. Uh, we did in the bedroom. Like, like she's, I don't know, 10 or 15 years older and looks better. Like, because, because, right. Like we just like start, stopped like putting people in ridiculous clothes and hairdos and stuff and then just let them be, uh, for a very strange time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, going back to, to characters, uh, were there characters that, that stood out on this rewatch Scott, uh, for you that anyone that, that maybe left you feeling better about that you remembered more fondly and anyone that maybe sort of fell in, in your, in your estimation. I deeply enjoy the vindictive shopkeepers. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Um, I mean, they, they were, they were funny back then, but they're funny now. Nothing has changed about that. Some rich guy came in and bought their dream home and they hate him. That's timeless. And arguably more poignant now yeah. the housing market and the world have you know sort don't of they just call they call him hitler at one point don't they they're like hitler <laughs> well she keeps calling him a son of a bitch and then the husband's like oh she never says that and then she keeps saying it which is a good guy if i 
lose consciousness or black out or something explodes, would you tell Dr. Marvin when he calls that I was here Dr. early? Dr. Leo Marvin? Do you know him? Yeah. He bought our dream house. He worked a lifetime to save for a down payment. And he swooped down with his bag full of money and grabbed it out from under us. Son of a bitch. She never says that. Which, um, and I don't know if this is a plot hole or a from the time sort of thing, but tying to the shopkeepers, and I'm sort of on a tangent here, but it, the big spoiler for anyone who has not seen this 30-year-old movie is that uh, Dr. Marvin decides to kill Bob. He, he feigns a therapy called death therapy where he ties Bob up in the woods and puts 20 pounds of explosives around him. He gets the explosives by breaking into this general local general store in Lake Winnipesaukee, and he's he's searching through like okay, well we've got guns, no, that's too messy. And then there's a, an entire cabinet full of it, it claims it's for stump removal, which maybe that is, I, I stumped up. That is a thing. It is okay. Yeah, but I'm a city you, kid. I, I don't ask me. <laughs> I, no, it's like do you use a stump grinder? You can use explosives, but they just had a whole cabinet full of this, which Dr. Marvin took several bags worth of it, and that was enough to blow up his house. I feel like this cabinet was enough to level several city blocks, <laughs> and it just doesn't seem like a great storage solution for a general store in an era where everyone smoked indoors. And <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's one of the many, many, uh, there's just this inevitable dividing line of pre-9-11 and post-9-11 movies when it comes to stuff. It's just like something like that. Someone would be like, no, we can't. That's where we're, we can't, we're, we really have to think about like, like what's a, what's like something that would be available in a general store uh, in a way. Yeah, they just partly a, a deus ex machina to have like, you know, okay, well we need something that we can put on Bob, but he can put in the house and we can blow it up. Okay. Well, there's a, a whole shelf full of explosives in general store, but maybe you would have that back then. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a suburban kid. I had small town life. Maybe that's just how it was. I well, I, I do want to get into plot holes, but will, before we do, I, what, what about your, your characters that, that you saw sort of maybe appreciated more or, and or less uh, upon a re rewatch here. I was really surprised at how much of a dick Richard Dreyfuss's character was played. Um, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said about Bob being not particularly sympathetic, but I sort of saw how the, they were trying to write it like, yeah, we're, we're going to play up his mental illness in the beginning for the yucks, but then they were going to tamp down on them a little bit. But Richard Dreyfuss is going to keep increasing in his dickishness. It was a very strange like arc to deal with regard to both characters. I, I loved the little, the little boy. I think he was probably my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's so funny. I, I always think back. So I, I was a film major in college and I took screenwriting classes. And one of the things I always remember from screenwriting is, you know, they say like, if you really want to make your character, uh, you know, compelling and, and get the audience on their side, you put them through as many challenges as possible. And that's what builds that, that relationship with the character but the character who gets put through all of those challenges is Dr. Marvin. It's Richard Dreyfus, And so there's a reading of this where like, this is like the book of Job. <laughs> like he is actually the protagonist getting like dragged to hell by this, by this horrible, you know, person who he's like, he's like literally 
medically ethically bound to help <laughs> and like cannot escape uh but yeah right it's it's just so funny that like like clearly he is you're supposed to laugh at his pain like that's yeah. that is how it is constructed but at the same time like if you read it the other way around it's like really really like horrific like just this death spiral of, of this very successful man's career and life and like because of this one person well imagine if we had a if we had a fan of the show who just would not leave us alone and started stalking us yeah yeah it would it wouldn't end well for anybody I'm no sure. <laughs> but but right like like it's it's just it's such a like many movies that we do on this show the more you think about it, the more it starts to fall apart. <laughs> like the more, the more you you get past like the the text itself. So speaking of that, let's uh, let's get into some of those plot holes and continuity errors, uh, things that that did not make sense and did not uh, really fit with, within the plot. Uh, Scott, you, you touched on a couple already in terms of the the shop and stuff. What, what else stood out to you as being like uh, things that were not realistic, things that didn't that were underexplained, uh, or just like even straight up uh, technical continuity errors. Bob's wife, you know, we touched on this a bit already. Bob's Bob's wife was confusing to me because they allude to a job, but then he leaves for a month to go stalk Dr. Marvin at Lake Winnipesaukee. He can clearly afford a high end therapist at a time when insurance was probably even less forgiving toward toward that sort of period. I'm sure he's paying out of pocket for this, but he also lives in, you know, a bad apartment. And it, that may just be, again, every every 90s depiction of New York City was just like that. But, you know, he, he's, it's like a three foot wide hallway when he goes outside into the filth of the city. So any background on who Bob was, was a little lacking to me. You know, is he is he Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, or is he just a, a you know, or is he George Costanza? Where, where are we putting him on the spectrum of? Well, and right to like go back to the sort of the read of like him being the villain. Like, has he just propagated a series of invasions of his therapist's lives and and systematically ruined? Like, his is his? There's the they talk about his ex-wife. Was his ex-wife one of his older therapists? What you're saying is that even though you are an almost paralyzed, multiphobic personality then is in a constant state of panic. Your wife did not leave you. You left her because she liked Neil Diamond. No, you're saying that maybe, maybe I didn't leave her because she likes Neil Diamond, but maybe, maybe she left me? Yes. Ow, 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 ow. Ow. Is, is he just making, is this what he does? Is he just like co-ops a therapist's life and ruins it? Like, like what is, right. We don't really get into like, they, they make it seem innocent enough, but there are definitely questions that, you know, left open there. Yeah. And, um, I don't know if it's a plot hole so much as just, uh, you know, I, this is a real tangent, but I felt this way very much watching the, um, I don't know if you've watched the Cobra Kai at all. The, the Karate Kid reboot. Have not. It's terrible in an enjoyable way. <laughs> but during the, the most recent season, every five minutes I was yelling, why has no one called the cops? That there, there are increasingly dangerous situations that 
at some point, regardless of your of your feelings on doing so, somebody would have called for an authority figure to step in. Is in, in that teenagers are beating beating the crap out of each other. Um, but this guy shows up in Lake Winnipesaukee. That is itself a very troubling event. You know, any any doctor in 1991, let alone 2021, would would take umbrage there. And again, I don't know if that's so much a plot hole. So it's just it's it's the way things were. I mean, I, I guess it was a, a it was a fairly technically consistent movie in that it had a really pretty thin plot. Line. <laughs> you know, it, they they didn't like oh they they missed this. It wasn't an intricate plot. Right. So there weren't a lot of places for it to go awry so much as, well, that's weird. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and sorry, I, I had, uh, misspoken earlier. Uh, episode six was, was big episode three. Uh, Joss, we don't IMO, uh, Buffy the vampire slayer, uh, movie has m- many of the same things we talked about, uh, in terms of this, like this high school is just being like overrun and kids are being turned into vampires and there's this dance and they're killing all these vampires. And like, there are no police. <laughs> like, like you're just like, you're like, what? Or what? even no. here, you know, yeah. any authority figure of some Nothing. sort. Yeah. Right. Needs to step in and say like, you know, I said with Cobra Kai, children, children are coming home with serious injuries. At some point, somebody needs to step in here. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, they definitely, just sort of exist in this little weird idyllic and and I, I think they do i will give them credit where like we see the cop who writes who writes dr marvin the ticket who's like oh i saw you on tv and we see like the security guy like the like the uh mental hospital say oh i didn't i see you on tv like like at some point that stuff starts to take over where it's like oh this guy's like famous and like cool and nice and so so like everyone has started to side with with him with bob as being like the normal one and like dr marvin is being this sort of surly crazy and even even i thought like maybe the most cruel part is like none of them mentioned that he was on the interview it's I like it's, <laughs> that he's just yeah. so forgettable that like it was his interview and no one even remembers that he was like a part of it uh Which, now that you mentioned that that was another element that dated it for me because my initial reaction was like i mean it's a, it's a comedy all of these people saw this segment but then I'm like, eh, it was 1991. Yeah, they everyone did watch. Right. The same shows, you know, there, <laughs> there were far fewer channels. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, do you have any, anything else uh, or will? Did you have any other uh, any other plot holes? That, anything that, that really stood out? I have no idea why why the family likes Bob so much. It's ne- there's nothing. It just suddenly they do. I mean, I, I get, I, I get, I get on some level with the kids. They like he fight. There, we see these establishing. Like I don't know why at first, but then we we get to see where he like he he resonates with them and he understands them in ways that like his dad clearly doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I get it later, but like the the right. immediate jump into oh, we love this guy. Why? Why? Yeah, it's it's. It would have been better if there was something early on that really endeared everybody to kind of give him the leeway to then prove himself to build that up. Because uh, yeah, it out of the gate and again with the wife, it just doesn't really make any sense like, why like, she would I be mean, siding. You, you could have Bob arrive in the in the town, freak out the doctor. The doctor is inadvertently like walking back into traffic, and Bob like pulls him out of the way of a speeding truck. So at least there's something, right? Like right. the doctor some can still me- be pissed, but. Right. Yeah. But but then the family's 
it's so indebted to him. And, and, you know, he, you know, he did save Dr. Marvin from choking, <laughs> right. but that was already after they had invited him to dinner at the house. So yeah, your, your method is the same, the same approach, but earlier, earlier yeah. Would, yeah. would help a lot because yeah, why Julie Haggard's character likes him. It, like, okay. The kids like him because their dad is extremely uptight and not any fun. I can, I can get behind that, but it, it seems clear that Julie Hegarty's character is also uptight and not any fun. She is married to Dr. Leo Marvin and is not written to display much personality of her own. So, right. Yeah. Uh, also, you don't make noise when you're choking and pile driving somebody with your knee into their back is not exactly the most effective way to uh, get them to stop choking anymore. That whole scene was pretty absurd. Uh, I understand it was played for laughs, but also like, Okay, um, the uh, the whole call center thing, like how how did Bob get the address to show up at that thing, impersonating a police officer? How in the world would, did he like? I, I get that he's like somewhat resourceful, but like, what? How would he have found that? Like, there was there was no explanation from like him trying to impersonate yeah, the sister to get through on the line, which, okay, you could see that happening to then him like somehow finding where this place was and like running this whole con on everybody. But like, just like, I have no idea how he would have gotten there. Yeah, uh, That doesn't make any damn sense. No. Also like nobody like flinches when they, he takes him like for a ride somewhere. They're like, Oh great. <laughs> Take Bob for a ride. when <laughs> he's like taking him to drop him off at the insane asylum. Uh, and also this this one like may seem minor, but it just like really bothered me. This is the middle of summer in a northern location where the sun goes down at, I don't know, nine o'clock at the earliest, probably. He's supposed to be home by seven. Dr. Marvin's supposed to be home by seven. His wife tells him, make sure you're home by seven because she has a surprise party planned for his birthday. And he doesn't get home by seven. He goes through this whole escapade. He ends up with a flat tire on the side of the road. He gets sprayed with mud. He's on the verge of completely breaking down. By the time he gets home, it is pitch black. It is not twilight. It is pitch black. And he goes to the back balcony and everyone is still there at at least 10 o'clock. I mean, we're talking <laughs> at least three hours past the time that he was supposed to show up for the surprise party. This guy's kind of an asshole. We're supposed to believe that these people waited three hours past when he was supposed to show up for this to, for, for this party. I just is like, okay, I don't, I know it's not big, but like this is this doesn't make any sense. I enjoyed in that scene where he comes in looking looking horrible, mud on his face, everything. Freaks out when he sees Bob, yells at him, and then there's just the guy in the background with the glass of wine. Is like, here's to you. Well, you know, just like, I'm still in the party mode. I don't care what's happening here. <laughs> yeah. The, that whole, and then, of course, like, Bob suggesting his prescriptions and stuff. Like, it, it, it all sort of started to fall apart and go off the rails, I think, uh, on some degree at, at that point. I do have to say, um, I really did appreciate the fact that um, Gil lives in a gefilte fish bottle. Well, and the fact that... Just the fact that the fish is named Gil, I think, is funny. It's I mean, named Gil, and it lives in a gefilte fish bottle. I was like, oh, okay. Like, if you can pay yeah. enough attention to that one particular aspect, why just screw the other, everything else up? Right. I mean, that's what a comedy should be. It should have all of these little things on top of the, of the main beats. It should have all these little jokes. And like, there were good little jokes kind of sprinkled in there. But, like, 
some of the main ones maybe didn't work as well. If you guys want to get into some of the some of the behind the scenes stuff, Scott, I don't know. Will and I were talking before we started, but did you did you do any research on on what happened on set and all of that with with this film? I did not. I, you know, I, <laughs> I dug through some, but did not get that deep. So I'm interested. Well, I'll let Will start, and then I'll fill in uh, as we go here. Uh, well, let me tell people about why this movie maybe showed up the way that it did uh, on on in its final product. So apparently, Murray and Dreyfus did not like each other especially on set. And apparently at one point, Bill Murray got hosed, told Dreyfus that he was merely tolerated and then threw an ashtray at him. And then later on in the production, threw one of the producers into the lake that they filmed at. A, a, woman. a woman. Like threw her into the lake and like broke her sunglasses. Like basically Bill Murray decided to be an antagonist to everybody, but especially to Richard Dreyfus, And seemed to think that they that they had an understanding that that was like going to bring out the character but richard Dreyfus, in like every interview he's ever done is like i hate bill murray like i, I like this was <laughs> like like we we hate each other he's a terrible person like this like I, like but yeah the, the, that one line which <laughs> i don't even i don't know if it like makes sense to like it's like an episode title or something but it was so funny he said everyone hates you you are tolerated <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's I don't know. It's hilarious to think about. Like, <laughs> so this actually does touch on something I wanted to get to, and where I mentioned about alternate casting is, and I don't know if this is an opinion that's going to get get me canceled because I've enjoyed a great many Bill Murray movie. You know, I think Groundhog Day is a, a fantastic movie. I love Ghostbusters. I know Bill Murray as a cultural figure is very popular. But it was occurring to me at some point during the movie, you know, we've been hung up on this. This guy shows up. He's kind of an ass. He makes everything about himself and everyone loves him for it. Is sort of the story of Bill Murray as a person today. Yeah, you're not wrong. That, you know, he shows up at a wedding and starts tending bar and, you know, you're like, OK, well, it's my wedding. Get out of here, Bill Murray. Like, you know, and and I, I live in I live in Louisville now. Um, there was a a period and I don't think anymore, but his, his son was an assistant coach for the university of Louisville basketball team, men's basketball team. And so he started doing that here. He just hang out places. I had no personal experience with this, but the general public reaction to Bill Murray's kind of dickish antics are a pretty good proxy for the people of Lake Winnipesaukee to, to Bob Wiley's antics and so this do we like Bob or not, it was occurring to me like this is probably just Bill Murray is running running loose on this film. And I don't know what they initially intended, but it may be out of their control. <laughs> I mean, based on on Frank Oz was the director, based on some of the Frank Oz comments, that's kind of seemed like what it was. It was like we did we all had different uh creative ideas about how like we wanted to make this movie and those didn't always agree with each other and uh but you know we we persevered and it's just like okay i get it like like he was as diplomatic as like he could be but yeah um, in 1991 as you said this wasn't early murray this was mid murray there was no telling him no at this point right yeah and and, and he was kind of like 
this was post Ghostbusters two kind of flop where he was like reasserting himself as the like you know leading comedy charge. Uh, so um, also interestingly, just in terms of other people involved with this film, uh, Alvin Sargent, who was one of the writers, wrote everything from the way we were to the Spider Man franchise of the early aughts. Just like a bizarre oeuvre of of <laughs> texts from like a writer to have this be included in the middle of. And the screenwriter uh, is a an Academy Award winner because he wrote Dead Poets Society. Oh, God. And also, Scott, you will appreciate, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Nice. <laughs> Which is literally the movie that we were talking about that you had gone back to see, <laughs> tying that whole thing back. I, I saw that, and I was like, well, that's that's just perfect for Yeah, for and pretty well, that's how we, we got into this conversation, was I had recently we watched that movie, which I thought aged quite well, actually. I still love Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, yeah. Yeah, and I, I had not seen it in maybe 30 years, but especially during the pandemic, I've got two young kids and we've run out of movies to watch. So, you know, like, okay, what do I like from my childhood? I thought I liked Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And I was surprised there was nothing that really like jumped out as like, oh, I, don't pay attention to that. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, also, uh, that is not New Hampshire, by the way, where they film that. It's in rural Virginia. Uh, a little town in the middle of like this of central Virginia, a couple hours south of where Will and I are, uh, that like evidently is just a ghost town now. And like it doesn't even like the, it was just like the general store and whatever was next to it. And those are like gone. There's nothing I mean, there anymore. <laughs> I will cop to the fact that I did not know whether or not like Winnipesaukee was a real place until I Googled it. And, and it is. And I'm sure many people know that. But uh, I, I would I wouldn't have known. Um, I don't know anything about New Hampshire. It could just as easily be uh, one of those made-up locations for a movie, but it, it is, in fact, a real place. I don't know why they didn't just say we're going to Virginia and just, like, leave it be what it is. Why why New Hampshire? I think maybe it's supposed to be waspy and evocative of all that and, like... Weird New Englanders, you know, the the shopkeepers, I feel like, played better as New Englanders than Virginians. Yeah, like, it, it could have been Maine, right? Like, it almost feels like yeah. like, like that Maine-ish sort of, like, you know, attitude of, of everything. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it works for New Hampshire, too. But yeah, like, I, I do appreciate the idea of, like, the little small towners. And, and, and like we've said, like, that is very, very, like, current, too, of, of the, they're like, this was our dream house that this rich asshole came in and bought uh, out from under us. And we're, we're just going to resent him at, at every turn. I do, and they, I do they, find, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, they use that well in the plot in terms of like, oh, you're waiting for him to call? We'll just take you to his house. Like that, <laughs> that, that is really well done. I love the fact that they're always fishing, just like just apparently out of frame to witness every terrible <laughs> event that happens right. to Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, they're just the Greek chorus, like waiting for, yeah. <laughs> for things to comment on. Before we get into to the last couple of things, uh, I actually have a great Gaucho watch this time. So I'm very, very excited. We've had a little lapse in Gaucho watch, which is my self-indulgence. Uh, where I try to find a tie between this film and my alma mater, the Uni University of California, Santa Barbara. And uh, there's a good one, because in April, Bill Murray was honored with the Malton Modern Master Award at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival and said this during his accept acceptance speech to Leonard Malton. Quote, Leonard, I congratulate you for 31 years of doing this. I can only imagine how many times you've ordered the number 16 at La Super Rica. It's the number 16. You've got to get it. I always had a lot of fun in Santa Barbara. I was always interested in the place. In the 60s, they burned down the Bank of America. Uh, in 1970, the Bank of America in Isla Vista, the student community next to UC Santa Barbara, was burned to the ground in protest. 
uh, thereby fulfilling Gaucho Watch for this episode. And the number 16 at La Super Rica, which is actually in uh, basically downtown Santa Barbara, just off of downtown Santa Barbara, is uh, roasted pisilla chilies stuffed with cheese and marinated pork served with tortillas. It sounds delicious. So uh, that is that is a, a little green shack taco hut that's very, very popular uh, among locals and visitors to Santa Barbara. So uh, yeah, actually a good gaucho watch uh, for the first time in a few, in a few weeks. Where have, have these characters gone? What has happened to this world since 1991 in, in the intervening years? It's been 30 years now. What happened to Bob? What happened to Dr. Leo? What happened to, to, uh, to all of this world? Scott, do you want to take a crack at this? So I feel like Dr. Marvin, assuming that his career recovered from his, his breakdown toward the end of the movie, if he resumed as a pop psychologist, as he did, it has all definitely been debunked. And I would say 80% chance he's been canceled for some sort of, he's got a vibe, you know, I, I, I don't feel like this prominent figure from the nineties would have, would be doing well now, at least in the public image, if not, you know, private life. Bob. Bob is probably dead. I can't say necessarily how. But. <laughs> well, it's like I think of like the Defector podcast. They do dead or canceled, and like it's kind of, we're kind of kind of asking that of like these characters. Okay, well, are they dead or are they canceled? Um, Will do you do you have a do you have sort of a? I it's not an origin story. It's a continuation story. Do you have a continuation story for these guys? Yeah, so I think that Bob is still alive, unfortunately, and he has actually married Richard Dreyfuss's wife because Richard Dreyfuss is dead. Mm -hmm. Okay, he's just moving into the family. So, so what what happened to Doctor Marvin's sister in that scenario? Also dead, or she just you know likes likes the wrong musician and they had to divorce. Mm -hmm. See, I I I think that, that that whole story, the Neil Diamond story, was a cover. Because I think that Bob has been doing this every five to ten years in his adult life, has been has been co-opting a new psychiatrist and ruining their lives and 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 then moving on to, to the next conquest, as it were. Uh, so I, I think that he's probably just continued to do this every five or ten years to new psychiatrists. Uh, Leo is Leo is probably still broken from this uh, in some way, retired to a more private uh, version of his life. And Bob's just out there, you know, running this game again, and, and as I mean, long like, as he can, he can get away with know, it. I think that's right. in the age of twenty-three. And, in the age of twenty-three, and me, we may have found out that Bob is indeed a serial killer. Yeah, uh, it's, cert- it's certainly possible. Who knows and how many Sig- dead therapists there are? <laughs> uh, Sigmund is, I think, has followed exactly the Charlie Corsmo arc. He is. Do he's working on torts reform? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Uh, I I don't know if it makes sense that Catherine Irby's on Law and Order or not, but you know, whatever. Like, sure, yeah. why not? I, I could. It took me a, like a half the movie, and I was like, "That's who that is." I I like I was like, I know this person's from somewhere. I was like, "Oh wow, right, of course." Like she's 
that are like one of the main characters on a long running serial on TV. Uh, but it's, you know, it's 30 years later. It's a, she's a, goes from being someone playing a teenager to, to, a you know, a full fledged adult. It's it just a, it, it was funny to have that realization kick in right about half, right about the, the point where Richard Dreyfus pulls out the puppets and they start having that weird, creepy puppet scene, uh, which I felt like they could have, explain more there but it it was it was a good way of explaining like how much he'd sort of failed as a parent so yeah all right any other any other loose ends any other stuff that, that you guys noticed uh uh things that you that you were confused about you wanted to to, to bring up and talk about and hash out before we kind of get to, to the final question here i don't think this movie knows what tourette syndrome is yeah yeah it make it certainly makes light of it right i mean it 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 treats it it treats it in the way that bob treats it but never clarifies in any way that like hey this is not what this is yeah and and turkey tits really stood out to me as the weirdest <laughs> exclamation. i'm assuming that was all ad lib probably but they uh... got they got away with a lot of like not like hard swear words but a lot of stuff for a pg movie like a lot of that that back and forth in the like haha we're acting like we have Tourette's and, and like swearing you know uncontrollably it, it was it was stuff that I suppose maybe would just be PG-13 now or maybe they, they just tweak it down they tone it down a little bit to keep it PG but uh that was something that sort of stood out to me where I was like oh right this is a 1991 PG movie right yeah. <laughs> uh that that doesn't necessarily mean the exact same thing now so I mean I don't know if this is jumping the gun on your final question but I, I do have my my alternate casting that I would love to see here is going back to the this is Bill Murray run rampant. I feel like I would have rather seen uh, Steve Martin in the Bob role. So he was brought up as someone who was considered for both roles, which is oh, really okay, really interesting to think about. I certainly the whole I I, I could almost see him more in the other role. Like, 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 I, I mean, I could see him in both, but like, I could almost see him more as the like, just that like manic Steve Martin, you know, go, as he's getting driven insane. Because Richard Dreyfus is so unlikable in so many ways in that yeah, role, yeah, yeah. where Steve Martin could be more likable and throw more kind of like it's chaos like, into who are you really rooting for. Well, I think that's the that gets to like why I wanted to see it is that Steve Martin. I feel like more so than Bill Murray knows what movie he's in and knows what character he's playing. Because if he were playing Leo Marvin, he would be his character from planes, trains and automobiles, who is a dick who is slowly driven insane by somebody like the John Candy character in that movie is abrasive, but actually lovable in a way that I feel like Bob is not, or you could go the other route and if you had steve martin playing bob it would just be the jerk you know <laughs> yeah well i i, I yeah I, li I like the planes trains and automobiles uh comparison i mean i, I that is that is where, where like maybe that movie pulled that off better in terms of really making you you understand that like this guy's a pain in the ass but like he's trying hard to be a good person like he's he is a the john candy character is genuinely like not a bad person we're like Bob, like Bill Murray, like like Bob's kind of a, an asshole, and he might be a sociopath. Like like there's a legitimate case to be made that he's like a, like a manipulative, 
like crazy person. Uh, well, we keep wondering how many dead therapists there might be that are tied to Bob. Right. Right. Well, yeah, you know, the Bob says he and his wife broke up because she liked the wrong music. Whereas in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Neil Diamond specifically. Yeah. yeah. Like in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, he's on the road for a while and hasn't seen his wife in a while. But then it comes out, well, he's on the road because he's still grieving her death. There, there's no tieback redemption for Bob there of like, well, he's like this because of a heartbreak or of a tragedy or right. something. Actually, we actually find out that she left him as opposed to just this sort of suggestion that like, oh, yeah, no, maybe she left him in that in that early scene in the office. Right. Right. Like we never get the like, oh, oh, this is really sad. And like, you know, uh, you can feel feel something for him. Right. It's it's. And, and- and maybe this is just because, you know, Bill Murray, and again, I loved a lot of Bill Murray's, but he doesn't have that, Bill Murray movies, he doesn't have that fundamental warmth that a John Candy does. You know, I mean, it, no, Groundhog, I Day, agree with you, yeah. Groundhog Day is the best example of that. He can, you know, he learns to be better through his tortures, but. But even then, he's not, he's never like fuzzy. I mean, he he's. He's <laughs> this is this is a strange comparison and it just I I'm I'm just rolling with it but it's it's like the Anthony Bourdain and Guy Fieri comparison it's like like Bourdain's like an asshole but like you like he's like you like him because he's like funny and and jovial in ways and like you know but you know he's he was kind of an asshole and like that's like kind of the way that like Bill Murray treats stuff whereas like John Candy is the more lovable like Guy Fieri like like he's you know he's a good guy you and like maybe he's goofy and maybe he's not as like cool and maybe he's not as like fun, but like, he's, you know, that he's like, he means what he's doing and, and, and you, yeah. you know, like, like there's that sort of, of, of genuineness there that, that you're just never going to have with the Bill Murray character. All right. Well, we must answer the all important final question. The only reason this podcast exists, we must ask Scott, do you still like this movie? I, it, the funny thing is, I, I think so. <laughs> it's good enough, you know. It, it, as I've brought up other movies here, like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, or you've brought up Ghostbusters, it does not stand the test of time like that. And I, I you know, those are movies that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is thirty-five years old. I have watched it in the last year of my own volition, and not for a, a premise like this. There's a reason I didn't come back to this movie. So I I guess I'm backtracking to No, not really. <laughs> yeah, I mean it I I I remembered I had remembered that the Richard Dreyfus character was very abrasive and, and I remembered certain parts of it. And then I hadn't remembered certain parts of it where I was like, oh, yeah, right, this got very, very dark. And I I I seem to have some memory of, of being a little bit unsettled by having watched this as, as a kid and then being like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that was right. That I, <laughs> I felt that way that I didn't, wasn't like, Oh, this was funny. Like I was like, eh, I, don't, I don't really know what to make of this. I think I'm, I feel very much like Scott does where I did have, well, let me stop myself. Scott said this more succinctly than I could, which is there's a reason I haven't watched this. And it just, it's not quite funny enough to be, you know, something that's stuck in my brain as a kid. It's definitely unsettling in some aspects. And the mental health stuff would have to be completely reworked, 
you know, to make it palatable. Yeah. Uh, speaking of like, there, it, there's nothing as like laugh out loud funny as you expect a comedy to be. Like I was looking through the quotes because we always pull like, you know, various clips and we always try to find one, like an opening clip. And I was going through the quotes and I was like, none of these are funny. Like <laughs> none of these stand out as being funny. There are not a lot of jokes that like really are just like easy, you know, uh, uh, quips. Like, I, mean, I watched that, it with my wife last night. I can't remember any lines other than the Neil Neil Diamond thing. Or, yeah, or like you know, baby steps, baby baby steps out of the office, baby steps over. Like that's not really it's a not joke. Funny. It's just kind of yeah, uh... yeah. Well, so let's so let's go back. So, <clears throat> could this movie get made today? What would it take? Uh, you know, t- to make it today, what would it look like? Where would it come out? You know, who who would be acting in this? What 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 would this look like, Scott? Oh gosh, I mean, you know, as Will said, it would have to be a, a complete reframing of the view of mental health. Um, you would have to make clear, I think, that Doctor Marvin is is the villain. I think it would have to be like a. It's ambiguous in, in this movie. I think it might work if you make clear that he's a hack. If you position him as a Dr. Phil and make, you know, sort of root for this comeuppance at the hands of Bob. But then as we discussed with, you know, planes, trains, and auto wheels, I think you need to have a, a redemption for Bob's neuroses. And then they learn from each other or something instead of just Bob ruins his life. You know, you want it to be steer harder into, and I think this was the joke in 91, is that Dr. Marvin's kind of a dick, and it's funny that he's having his right life life ruined, but they didn't stick it hard enough, I feel like. I, I almost feel like Dr. Oz instead of Dr. Phil. Like, yeah. I, want, I want the guy who's hawking, you know, horrible products and stuff. Like, who's just who's just completely sold himself out to, like, to whatever, you know, comes Some along. Doctor, and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but right, like, yeah, yeah. You just, you have to make the protagonists more likable. The, they have to be more, more fuzzy, I think, and really sell everybody on, like, why you're, why, why this guy's family has completely abandoned him for the, some stranger. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't know who that, who that, that could be, like, I don't know who you cast in that. That's that, that can generate that. I mean, is that Jack Black? Is that, you know, like who's, who's the guy who, who's, who's able to genuinely sell that in a way. You could, you could go, if we did the Dr. Oz thing and you got someone like Chris Pine, who is talented and can do comedy, not Chris Pratt because he's too 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 big and goofy, just generally speaking. But Chris Pine, if you make him like Captain Kirk of bad TV uh, medicine, and then our Bob, maybe he has consumed too much of whatever product the, the Chris Pine Doctor Oz character is hawking, and he's like, "Oh, I'm really sick," and then he's got to try to find his way to Chris Pine and they try to work out like, okay, well what's Dr. Creepo Oz doing? Why has it made Bob sick? Why is Bob here? Oh, Bob's here because he has a stomach ache, but this medicine was supposed to cure him. And then you start working from there. And so that way Bob can be like not a complete stalker psychopath. And there's like, like an actual reason to find the Chris Pine character, but Chris Pine's family knows that like he's been hawking this terrible thing. So they automatically don't like him. 
and then they can sort of like work together to mm -hmm. to, to resolve this the situation i've been envisioning chris pine That's, here now there's, there's my 30 second pitch <laughs> I, I landed on my bob it took a second but i would like to see tim robinson uh from i think you should leave and detroiters as the bob because I think he can play lovably off-putting in a very good way. Yeah, you know? I can see that. Sure. A lot of the like physical, physical comedy and abrasiveness, but but could be likable. I I think that you could also, and not to to hew too much toward the existing uh, show, but you could go with like a Walton Goggins in a, in a, almost like a more religious doctor, you know, like a, like a tie that into the whole sort of Southern, like, like the righteous gemstones thing, have him be the, be the bad guy. Who's like, who's the, who's the real snake oil salesman. Like I, I could, I could see that. I could see that working. Um, yeah. But right. Really defining those roles, I think is, is the key, right? I think we're all in agreement on like, you really have to have to have Bob be better, <laughs> <laughs> very yeah. clear more clearly like justified in his like have bob be a victim of whatever the snake oil salesman's doing and then right. try yeah. to wrap it all together like that it, it, in in two minutes we have just come up with a better film <laughs> well and i think i i do think that this could get made today I, mean, I think that there's and certainly that you could have a more serious discussion of and, and maybe even highlight the the lack of understanding of mental health in terms of whether it's through the doctor or whether it's through other characters who like you, you could really, you know, highlight the, the ways in which we uh, ignore and uh, shun and, and, you know, don't take care of people who, who really need help and, and don't know how to take care of people and don't have the societal structures to take care of people. Yeah. I and mean, they, yeah. there's, there's a lot of space to explore here in, in a really interesting way. I think. As you say that I'm realizing, I don't think it would get made as a 90 minute comedy Probably because I, those don't feel like they get made as much anymore. But I could see it as a Netflix or Prime, or Apple TV, like a series, you know, and that would give you more time to sort of flesh out these characters of like, you know, maybe 90 minutes wasn't enough to achieve that. Not that I wanted What About Bob to be longer. <laughs> 90 minutes was plenty as, as, as created, but you could take a longer draw on, okay, why do I like this character? Why do I dislike this character? Maybe it would work as an eight episode series, you know, now. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that there is that room for that too, where it's not nothing. It's, it's not just 90 minutes or 30 episodes a year for however many years we can squeeze out of a television. Show. Like there, there is that nice in between zone where like, some stories should get told over over that different, you know, amount of time. Six so. hours, you know. Yeah, right, right. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think we have uh, established what is wrong with this movie, how we would fix it, uh, what we still think of it. We've we've kind of answered all the questions. Um, uh, Scott, uh, do you want to tell people where uh, where they can find your work? Uh, what what where they can find you online if, if they want to stalk you? Yeah, <laughs> like like uh, Bob. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I live in Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire. Uh, but no, uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter as my primary vehicle, uh, you know, Action Cookbook, all, all together. And I write a Substack newsletter, the Action Cookbook newsletter, which is, there's no direct focus. I sort of write about whatever I, whatever I feel like 
on on Fridays, I I share food and drink and good things for your weekend. But the rest of it is sort of essays on parenting, life, sports, culture, whatever strikes me at the time. But people seem to like it. And that's uh, actioncookbook.substack.com. I'm there three times a week. <laughs> and I'm a subscriber. It's a it's a great newsletter. Uh, encourage you uh, to go check it out uh, if you're uh, uh, interested in any of those topics. They're all sort of things that merge with, with my life in various ways. So uh, do that and make sure you're following us on Twitter and on Instagram at like this movie. Uh, we'll be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, feel free to jump in the conversation using the hashtag ITILTM. That's hashtag ITILTM. And we will see you then. I Think I Like This Movie is created by Noah Frank and hosted by Noah Frank and Will Vitka. Editing by Will Vitka. All music on the show, unless otherwise noted, provided courtesy of the South County All-Stars. Copyright 2021. It reminds me of my favorite poem, which is, um, Roses are red, violets are blue, I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I.